you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 will be in verses 12 through 28 this morning. Every four years, our country, the United States of America, elects a president. And long before the election, uh, many contestants are vying for people's attention. Every election, it seems like there are more people in the election who want to be uh, president. And it's incredible how early they start campaigning for their presidency for uh, becoming the leader of the country. And ideally, the American people have a responsibility to examine the credibility and the experience of the leaders, and it's because they will be subject to their leadership. Uh, they will influence the direction of the country, and there are many related responsibilities that the United States has that people uh, that uh, fall to the person who is the president. They, they uh, sign laws into, into existence, uh, they lead the country, and they influence the foreign policy, they uh, appoint ambassadors, and even judges for the country. So lots of influence that comes through a president. Uh, because of this, people often look to leaders who are well-equipped. We think of generals like General Eisenhower, who after World War II rather easily was elected as, as president because people knew his track record, knew that he was someone who had led troops in battle and had been very uh, successful in leading the country. Uh, presidents like Reagan and, and Franklin Roosevelt were re-elected in landslides because people were convinced for whatever reasons, that they were capable leaders. The passage today in Mark 1 shows why Jesus is worthy, not of election, but of being heeded and obeyed, just like a leader, and why his authority should govern our lives. So let's look at Mark chapter 1, verses 11 through 20. The Spirit immediately drove him, that is Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority 
and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Amen. Would you join me now, going to the Lord, asking for his help in the preaching and the hearing of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word now, we thank you for the riches that it contains. We acknowledge our inability to uh, say or do or understand anything without the help of your Holy Spirit. And we just pray that by the help of your Spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds to the wonders of this good news that was delivered by Jesus. Show us Jesus in all of his beauty and make our hearts eager and welcome to his authority and his rule in our lives. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible points to Jesus throughout the scriptures. The Old Testament is a very large chunk of the total passage in my Bible. This much of the Bible is the Old Testament, and all of this is preparing for the coming of Jesus in a variety of ways in all of the different books in the Old Testament. Uh, The Bible points to Jesus also, we see, by the number of accounts that were given of his life. And the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're in Mark today, uh, each of these are like different camera angles on the life of Jesus. And they show uh, different aspects of his life and ministry, reinforcing again that it is the life of Jesus that is central to Scripture. Uh, In our last passage, we saw that Mark was beginning to show us, even from the first verse, that Jesus is the Son of God of God who possesses authority over our lives and is worthy of our trust even 2,000 years later. Mark 1.1 starts the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Mark tells us where he's headed with the book. Uh, The prophets had promised a forerunner in John the Baptist, and so excitement was high when John the Baptist appeared, fulfilling these prophecies and baptizing in the wilderness. And we saw in the last time we looked at Mark, in chapter 1, verse 11, uh, God came down on Jesus, the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So if you were thinking, how would God begin to rescue his people? Like, how would someone begin to rescue uh, a captive enemy? What would he do first? What would be the next move? And, you know, you might think if you asked a, a Jewish person at the time, what would be the next move? It would be to gather up leaders like the Maccabees 
and begin to attack and have a military battle and to move toward Rome and to perhaps take over Rome or at least throw off the bonds of Roman oppression that they currently had at that time. But we see that what Jesus does is he goes in the exact opposite direction from Rome. He goes out into the wilderness, away from people. And the main point of our passage today is that Jesus is the very best one to rule your life. He gives three reasons for this in the text. Jesus defeats the enemy that no one else could. Jesus is the divine source of God's good news. And Jesus calls ordinary people to transforming relationship. So we're left in verse 11 with this highlight of Jesus's ministry being inaugurated where the Father speaking from heaven, the Spirit in the form of a dove, and Jesus being baptized by John, all happening in verse 11. But then we see in verse 12 that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. What a strange contrast to have 11, verse 11, the affirmation of God of his beloved Son, directly next to the Spirit sending him out into the wilderness. These verses should be a comfort for anyone who is tempted to think if things are not going well, God is not pleased. God affirmed Jesus in verse 11, but sent him into the wilderness in verse 12 for divine purposes. And God allowed this testing for Jesus, so we know that trials are not automatically a signal that God is angry at you. Trials can be part of something much bigger. Now, the wilderness to where Jesus goes next, uh, driven by the Spirit, is a vast and barren place, and it meant many things for Israel symbolically in their history. Uh, it was where Israel had failed to obey God and had wandered for 40 years. After God had brought them out of Egypt, he had given them promises to take the land and to go into the, the, land, the promised land where he had uh, get, where he'd given that promise to Abraham over 400 years earlier. But because of their disobedience, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So that's one uh, meaning, uh, that, that's one connection of the wilderness that Israel would have had in their mind at this time. Another, the, the wilderness was where Moses received the law. While they were out in the wilderness uh, on Mount Sinai, God came down uh, and gave the law. And Moses fasted for 40 days as he was receiving the law, the Mosaic law. The wilderness was also where Elijah fled uh, after Jezebel threatened his life, after uh, the, the triumph over the prophets of Baal. And Elijah also fasted for 40 days in this period. Now, each of these different camera angles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each have a different thing that they're showing us. And Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, one is showing us the authority of Jesus as God's son. So he leaves out other details that some of the other gospels include, like the fasting and how Jesus was tempted. We can read Matthew and Luke for examples of that. But the focus here is that Jesus goes at God's command and he outlasts the devil. Jesus' purpose from the beginning is to rescue, to bring about God's kingdom, and to rescue people. Uh, we see also here in verse 13 that he was with the wild animals. This appears only in Mark. What a puzzling thing that Mark would say that Jesus was with the wild animals and the devil. 
This could be a picture of his authority as creator, foreshadowing what uh, Josh read in Isaiah 11 of how Jesus, how, of how in the future time the wolf would lie down with the lamb and the leopard with all of these different animals that would never naturally be together. So it could be foreshadowing that. It could also be a picture of Daniel in the lion's den or an allusion to that where uh, divine intervention shut the lion's mouths. So regardless, it shows that the wilderness was not a safe place where Jesus went. And yet he had God's divine protection. <clears throat> it also says that the angels were ministering to him. When Elijah fled to the wilderness, God sent angels who brought food and who ministered to him. And we're told in Hebrews 1 that the angels are sent as ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Now the focus of angels is never to get attention for themselves, but to direct worship to God and to obey him. And if angels are to support those who are to inherit, to serve those who are to inherit salvation, how much more the one who brings salvation, Jesus this passage also reminds us that we live in a spiritual world. We're often uh, reminded uh, by our culture around us of naturalism, the belief that we are just atoms and chemicals, and the only thing that exists is what we can see and measure. And the fact that Jesus goes here first shows us a reminder we are in a spiritual world. Unlike animals, cats, dogs, horses, humans are a spirit living in a physical body. And by Jesus starting his war in the wilderness, outlasting the devil, we should remember that there is a real spiritual world, and the spiritual world matters, and that Jesus came to launch a spiritual rescue for his people. It also reminds us that when we are afraid, when the darkness feels overwhelming, or people around us appeal to some other evil spiritual power, we should never forget that although the devil is much too strong for us, he's no match for Jesus. And from the very start of Jesus' ministry on earth, Jesus is thoroughly in control. We see this is trouble for the kingdom of the devil, a bad start, but it's very good news for oppressed humans. So Jesus deserves to be followed because he has authority over the spiritual world. The most strategic thing we see in this kingdom rescue is the Messiah goes first to the wilderness and wins where his people have failed. Jesus goes here first because his mission is to destroy the work of the devil. And as a means of God's rescue, he defeats the devil in the wilderness on behalf of his people who could not. By starting also with the wilderness, with Jesus versus the devil, and not Jesus marching on Rome or with crowds in Jerusalem, we see that the primary human problem that Jesus came to solve is not an education problem. It's not a humanitarian problem. It's not uh, uh, any, of, any sort of these kinds of things, but it's a spiritual problem at its core. Jesus cares about all kinds of suffering, especially eternal suffering. And we have to never forget that it's spiritual, it's human sin brought on by our rebellion that required Jesus to come to earth. 
This passage also shows us that Jesus is worthy to be followed because he understands our temptation. The Creator did not live in some false world where gravity was suspended. He didn't cling to his divinity, but he came to where people are. And he knows what temptation is, and he doesn't give power for some fake world, but for the world in which we live. This is where he came to win. If you've been in Austin for a while, you might have heard of the Museum of Ice Cream, which is in the domain, and it's a common place where companies with uh, money to spend will take their teams. And it's uh, a place filled with all of these exhibits, if you will, that represent uh, very elaborate demonstrations of the love for ice cream. It's an entire museum dedicated to it. There's one in Austin, in New York, in Shanghai, in Singapore, uh, and it's meant all to like bring out for people that love ice cream. Now, some people really find that amazing, but when you go into it, it's, it's a sugary dream world, and that's not the place where Jesus came. It's not that he came into this alternate universe of a soundstage. He came into the wilderness, and he went directly against the devil. We're told in Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you take your struggle to Jesus? He's not shocked or unable to help. He went into the wilderness and he defeated the enemy. For the first time, someone went head to head with the devil and won. So Jesus is worthy to be followed because he defeats the enemy that no one else can. The next reason that Jesus is the best one to rule our lives is that he is the divine source of God's good news. Now, the gospel is what Christians call the first, uh, or the gospel's plural, is what the Christians call, Christians call the first four books of uh, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the gospel also, in Mark 1.1, is the good news of Jesus. And the early church had these terms together, closely associated. The good news is Jesus coming to be our rescue and our ransom. And the stories of his life were called the gospels. Now, originally, the good news, this Greek word for good news, was used by the Romans to refer to the birth of Caesar, who they believed as a god. And in the irony that Mark loves to bring out, the Holy Spirit reclaims the term good news for a truly divine purpose to refer to Jesus' coming. In verse 15, it says, Jesus' message. What, what is the content of this message? the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. For hundreds of years, the prophets had proclaimed and promised this messianic kingdom that would someday come. And John the Baptist had told the people just earlier in chapter 1, prepare yourself because something big is coming. The king is coming. With this verse, this watershed moment, Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God on behalf of God. 
Now, this kingdom of God is not referenced explicitly as such in the Old Testament, but we see all of the history and the background, all of these references and themes pointing to the kingdom that Israel was always looking forward to. Back in Genesis, we see the rule and dominion of God in creating the world, and we've been going through that in the Genesis Sunday School class that just concluded in Genesis 1 through 11. We see then the rebellion in Eden, this this uprising against God uh, and being cast out. We see the pattern of the kingdom in Israel and God as king over his people, giving them the laws at Mount Sinai. We see in Judges the inability of people to rule themselves. It says at the end of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and they were constantly oppressed and overtaken by the nations around Israel. In 1 Samuel, we see them reject God and instead want a human king so they can look like the other nations around them. And after the fiasco that is called King Saul, uh, God appointed King David to be the king and gave great promises that his descendants would be the ancestors of a divine kingdom that would never end. But we see that even the kings that came from David led Israel astray. And Israel was taken into exile. So these themes of the kingdom, while not explicitly mentioned as the kingdom of God, the Jews would know what this meant. And when Jesus announced in verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, people would understand this is monumental. This is a watershed moment. There were also prophecies given in the Old Testament. And one, after a vision that Daniel records in Daniel 7, it refers to the coming of someone who would, uh, whose dominion and whose kingdom would never end. Here's what Daniel says in Daniel 7:13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So you can see that as when the Jews would hear this message proclaimed by Jesus, they would understand this is monumental. Jesus is proclaiming for the first time the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the divine messenger who's authorized to announce heaven's terms for a permanent reconciliation and peace between people and God. We see in North Korea and South Korea a lingering armistice or ceasefire that's lasted for many years. But the people of Korea have never truly been reconciled because those peace terms were never agreed on for a permanent peace. And here Jesus comes, giving a way that people can be reconciled with God. He tells them specifically in this kingdom manifesto what they are to do, how they can be made right with God, and warns that the kingdom of God is at hand. He tells them to repent and believe. Now, by including repentance, this doesn't mean that it's a works-based salvation where something we do makes us right before God. It's rather clarifying the kind of belief that's called for. When we trust in Christ, it should include 
a turning from our sin, a turning from our sin and a turning to Christ like two wings on an airplane. To turn from sin alone, but not to turn to Jesus, is just an ill-equipped moralism, trying to be a better person on your own strength. That's not what this message is. But believing in Jesus and not acknowledging your sin is to think of oneself as a good person and to not realize the sin problem that Jesus came to save us from, this rebellion that we have in our hearts. So Jesus calls to repent and believe, and that requires humility. We also see that this message that Jesus is proclaiming is the same one that we're called to proclaim today, to turn from trusting in ourselves and repent and trust in Christ, to believe Christ. The gospel doesn't evolve. There are many things that we change over time. People may upgrade their vehicle because it has too many miles on it, or they may change their carpet because it's out of date. They may update their IT equipment, or they may teach new subjects in school to help prepare students. They might change laws that happen. But the, this message of the kingdom, this kingdom manifesto, doesn't change. Uh, it will change at some point in the future when Jesus returns. But right now, his open invitation is available to you. And you do not want to be one of those who heard the words and didn't prepare because you had a better plan. The same call is simple and bold. Turn from your own works, from anything that you rely on for pleasing God. Acknowledge your need for God's deliverance and look to Jesus, the only one who can rescue and save. Jesus warns in Matthew 7 that not everyone who simply says, Lord, Lord, as though they know him, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. And people will point to their good works. They will point to the prophecies they have given or the, the demons they have cast out or the good works that they have done. But Jesus says he will say to them that he never knew them. They point to their own works and their own goodness rather than looking to Jesus. So we just see that Jesus defeats the enemy that no one else could. And Jesus is the divine source of God's good news, bringing in this message of the kingdom. And the third reason we see that Jesus possesses God's authority and is worthy of being followed is that Jesus calls ordinary people to a transforming relationship. Jesus calls ordinary people to a transforming relationship. Mark uses, loses no time as usual in moving us along to the next key part of this story. Jesus' ministry is to people, and so he begins to call his people. And in verse 16, Jesus, it says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now, fishing at this time in Israel's history was a very uh, common area in the Sea of Galilee. There would be potentially hundreds of boats there. Josephus mentions a time when there were 400 boats that, that came out on the Sea of Galilee. So we know that the fishing was a major industry. This was also not some totally remote backwater town, but it actually was a crossroads uh, where a lot of the fish from Galilee were shipped out. And so these different families would have their business and their boat. They would uh, take their nets out, and then they would uh, catch fish and sell them at the markets. And so Jesus comes along and sees these ordinary 
brothers doing maintenance as part of the company business. What's interesting is this summons from Jesus does not come based on their skills or their abilities or their initiative. But Jesus calls ordinary people to follow him, and that should be a comfort for all of us, ordinary people. Now, this is different in a couple of ways from how it typically worked. The rabbis would usually be sought by their students. The students would come to the rabbi and ask the rabbi to teach them. But here, Jesus is calling his disciples, showing that God takes initiative to draw the fishermen to him. We also see that this is different from how we choose people. Humans typically choose the best and the brightest. The Jewish scribes, to be accepted into the Jewish religious system, would have been the most educated or come from the right families, have good connections. And that's similar to how many things happen today. The elite students uh, come, from, come to elite schools because of their scores. The best athletes get on the best sports teams and go to the Olympics. Companies are always looking for the best talent. And even the military and fraternities have initiations of sorts to get into them. But this is not the kingdom of God. God summons ordinary people to a relationship, not on the basis of their merit. The first followers of Jesus we see are ordinary people. And Jesus knows that they are going to mess things up. But it's not about them being someone special to get noticed. It's about who Jesus is and what he, who he is calling them to be. Have you ever thanked Jesus, or have you recently thanked Jesus, for calling ordinary people? Now, the word social, uh, social media has sort of messed with our understanding of the word following. And in the last 20 years, it's really diluted our understanding of what it means to follow. Following Jesus is very different from being a follower on social media. Looking online, the largest following is with the football soccer player Cristiano Ronaldo. He has 598 million followers on Instagram. But this kind of following is a very low commitment. People can follow him and all of his opponents. They can quit at any time. And they're totally anonymous. He has no idea who all of these 598 million people are. And for his, his own uh, benefit, he can carefully curate what they see. He can only post all of the great moments of his career and not all of the other things that he'd rather them not see. So it's a very different kind of following from what Jesus is calling the disciples to. And by this word being so common today between Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all of these social media platforms, we can limit our understanding of the depth and the intensity that Jesus calls the disciples to follow. So there's three different ways that we see this work itself out. <clears throat> First, the disciples do more than listen, but they follow and they actually obey. There's many people who hear good teaching and then they just move on. And we see even at the end of this passage in verse 28, Jesus' fame begins to spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Many people just listened to Jesus but never took action. It didn't matter that the Son of God was proclaiming the kingdom of God and was the very word of God. 
They just came for the bread or came for the miracles and they moved on. It's easy for us to do this today, to hear a lot about Jesus and to not respond to the call that he makes to this kingdom manifesto. Is Christianity an intellectual pursuit for you? Where you've heard a lot about Jesus, you know many facts, you even know theological terms, but it's not really interrupted how you live. Everyone who is a part of God's family has some time when they go being, from being acquainted with who Jesus is to actually being a devoted and dedicated follower. Has that time happened for you? When that does, it does mean that you're going to lose things and give up your right to, do, to live your own plan. Children, do you have a relationship with God? It's easy to come to church and to be with your parents, uh, and to sometimes we can think, having grown up as a child in a church, to think that simply going to church makes you a Christian, or that being close to your parents means that you're a Christian. But that's not what this means. Being we're called to be obedient to our parents for sure, but we are only made right with God by becoming an individual follower of Jesus. So the same kingdom announcement is not just for adults, but it's for children too. Second, we see that disciples, the disciples' lives here are interrupted to Jesus' invitation. Their lives are never the same. They have individually acknowledged Jesus' authority in their life, and they followed him not because of the healings or the miracles, but because of the divine call. The miracles and the healings, that comes later, but here we see Jesus calling them to follow him. So the question for us is how disruptive is following Jesus to us? If our life, our day-to-day, -day, looks exactly like a non-follower of Jesus, is something wrong? In our city in particular, busyness is a particular threat. It is so easy to be consumed with busyness. And can you imagine one of the disciples hearing this individual call of Jesus, uh, or maybe other fishermen, and saying, I'll follow him, but let me just finish fixing this net first. I'll be right there. Uh, Jesus called to follow, and it says immediately they followed him. So what does it mean? How much would you allow Jesus to inconvenience your life, your priorities, your finances, to be a follower, a true follower of Jesus? The third way is we see that disciple, the disciples here give up every hindrance to following Jesus. And the question for us is, what might Jesus be calling you to leave to follow him? Now, some people reading this passage might think, it's my job. I have to quit my job. I have a family business, or I have a job, and I, that's what the disciples here did, and that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm just going to turn in my two weeks' notice and be done. Uh, that's not exactly what is being called for here. Uh, we're actually told that the 12 are called by Jesus for this specific kind of following. He's right there with them, physically present, and they are going to learn things by being with him physically. So in that, that specific way, that is how he was calling them. But in 1 Timothy 5, it says that if someone does not provide for his own, he is worse than an infidel. So we have to understand the kind of following that Jesus is calling to. We may not drop physical fishing nets to follow Jesus, but the call to Jesus is not, either, uh, not a vague one either. 
we're told in the revealed word of God how Christians are to obey God. We know that we're called to repent and believe, which Jesus calls here. And it looks things like children obeying their parents, uh, people obeying the civil government, and all of these kinds of things that are described in the word of God that we are given. In John 6, Jesus says that it's the Father's will that people would turn to Jesus. So we don't have to ask, how would Jesus follow when many of these things we know from Scripture? Their new calling is to spend time with Jesus and to join God in his work. Notice how he calls them to be fishers of men. They have been fishers of fish before, and now they're called to be fishers of men. Jesus promises to make them something they're not on their own and to be in community and fellowship with him. Not as spectators, but as participants in the kingdom of God, helping others to grow in the kingdom of God. It's so encouraging to see how so many in our congregation invest in others around them. It seems like there's always new examples of a, a different member reaching out to a different person and showing the love of Christ and helping each other to grow to look more like Jesus. And it's a beautiful and wonderful thing to see. God is working, giving to these disciples a front row seat to see God at work. It's an invitation to join him as he's bringing others to the kingdom of God, this ever-expanding kingdom of God. The Christian's call is not to keep himself comfortable. You just look at Jesus who started in the wilderness uh, but it's to help others come into the kingdom of God. What do you see as your role in helping others around you to grow spiritually? And what are the dominant features of your priorities and your relationships? How do you help people grow into the kingdom of God? Maybe it's spending time with them. Maybe it's reading scripture or praying together or those kinds of things. How do you minister to the people around you to be part of the work of the kingdom of God? In verses 21 through 28, we see the results of each of these three things. We see it played out in the synagogue. Now, the synagogue, since the exile, the time of Ezra, was a place where any time there were ten or more Jewish men, they would gather together and have a synagogue. So there were many synagogues scattered throughout, and that was the time when the temple did not exist and people were not able to travel around. So the synagogue here is at Capernaum, which was a Roman outpost on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It was, uh, there were Roman garrisons and it was the, the, the border between two Roman districts. Uh, and so it was a, a happening place where people were always coming through. And Jesus goes here. Uh, the rabbis would be the ones who would come in and would teach whatever was there. And the way that they would teach was whatever other rabbis they had heard, they would quote. So they often prided themselves on saying nothing new, but just attributing what other rabbis had said. And it says here in verse 22, that as the people in the synagogue that day heard Jesus teach on the synagogue, uh, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes, not all these other people who had been throwing around their opinions. Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom message, and he's speaking 
like an ambassador, but more than that, he's speaking like a king. He's announcing the kingdom of God and its implications for their lives. And so when people are amazed at Jesus, it makes sense the enemy here would come in and attempt to distract. And it says in verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know, you, who, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now what's ironic, and Mark in his gospel writes about many ironic things that happen. The ironic thing is that the first person to recognize who Jesus exactly is, is the demon-possessed man. And it takes Peter a while later in John 6, when people are leaving, Peter says to Jesus, where else will we go? You are the Son of God, the Holy One of God. So the demon here actually doesn't speak uh, a total lie, but he speaks the truth in a way to damage the ministry. And you think, well, if the whole message of Jesus was to proclaim who he was, why would Jesus tell the d demon to be silent? Well, we see this come up multiple times throughout Mark, leading up to Mark 8 and 9, where Jesus says that he has come to die, that his, uh, his coming to earth, his sacrificial work, is actually to be a sacrifice for people and to die. And from that point onward, it's public information. But this revelation of who he is is going to come on Jesus' timeline, not for the demon to control the pace, or the timing, or this poor man who's been oppressed by this demon. Spectacle can be a tool of the enemy and a distraction from the person of Jesus. It's also ironic that at the end, the people who observe the demon obey Jesus might actually ignore his message themselves. It says his fame spread abroad. And in verse 26, we see this authority work itself out how completely and calmly Jesus defeats the enemy. He doesn't dance around or do an incantation or does some sort of incense ritual. He speaks with his word. And we see throughout scripture that God has power with his word. So has God's kingdom announcement through Jesus changed your life? Is it truly Jesus who rules your heart? There's great reason from this text for you to follow him and to trust him with your life. We see that Jesus defeats the enemy that no one else could. Second, we see that he's the divine source of God's good news. And third, we see that Jesus calls ordinary people to a transforming relationship with him. Jesus comes not to a fake world, to an artificial place, but to our world, to a place of wildernesses, to a place of wild animals, of sweaty fishermen, and a places of empty religion. And into this real world, Jesus comes. He demonstrates his authority. He announces the rescue, the good news of God's kingdom, and he invites you to be a part. Following on social media is easy, but following Jesus is costly. Being reconciled to God invited to be a part of his kingdom and to be a part of God's work is the highest and most priceless privilege that any human can have. So the question for us is, what do we do? What is our relationship to the kingdom of God and the calling of Jesus? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing this amazing, incredible Savior in Jesus, this mystery hidden for ages and now revealed, this uh, Savior and King. We thank you that the call to follow is of one who is fully divine, who's governed by your spirit, who has power over the spiritual darkness, and who calls ordinary followers. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be faithful followers of Jesus, that your kingdom priorities would interrupt our lives, and that you would help us, Lord, to see Jesus in his beauty for who he is and to find salvation and faith by trusting in him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.